Hello, uh, thank you for joining another Primary Education Voice. I just wanted to jump in before the music begins to give a very special announcement. Primary Education Voices, the book, Teachers Inspiring Teachers, is going to be available in all good bookstores on the 27th of October, 2023. You can uh, pre-order in a number of places now. Uh, so please, whilst you're listening to the podcast or when you've driven, uh, pulled over from driving, please do uh, pre-order the, the book. Uh, it's, got, it's got a number of wonderful um, pieces of uh, writing from contributors from previous guests on the podcast, diving a bit, well, a lot more in depth into some aspects of what they shared on the podcast, but with more colour, more depth, uh, and some resources and materials on the, in there as well as well as some space for you to reflect on what they share in there too. We cover a wide range of topics from developing the right culture and ethos in your school or classroom to considering how your curriculum can become more rich and inclusive to looking after your own well-being and vitality in this role of, a, of being a primary educator in whatever role and capacity you have. Uh, this is just an exciting uh, development uh, for the podcast and so please do um get the book, leave a review and share it uh, with anyone who you know would be interested. It'd be great. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to the Primary Education Voices podcast, the podcast dedicated to the exciting world of primary education with me, your host, Matt Roberts. If you're a member of staff in primary education, then this podcast is just for you. Each week we speak with a special guest who's been recommended by listeners or previous guests of the podcast, and we find out what inspires them, including their top tips, resources, and philosophies that they are passionate about in this wonderful profession. Um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. As you will have hopefully listened uh, in the special intro to this podcast, the book Primary Education Voices is due out at the end of October, so please get your pre-orders in now, and it would be really helpful if you could please review the podcast on whatever your podcasting platform is and leave a rating. Will it really help to get uh, the Primary Education Voices podcast out more and share the brilliant voices that we have on this podcast? This week we have Rachel Orr joining us and it was fantastic to have Rachel joining us. Uh, she's been in primary education uh, for over 30 years, has a huge wealth of experience with a number of um, with roles and responsibilities that she's had along the way, particularly uh, in leadership. Uh, she's uh, currently uh, an MPQ assessor. Uh, she just has a number of um, opportunities to learn from in her wealth of experience that we have uh, with us today. So I'm very excited to have her on the podcast. Uh, and she was recommended by actually two of our previous guests on the podcast. That's Martin Bailey and John B as well. So clearly an inspirational person that we had to get onto the podcast. And I'm very excited to share the conversation that we had uh, with you today. So please sit back, relax and enjoy the episode that we had with Rachel Orr. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Rachel Orr. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm good, thank you. It's it's lovely to be invited to be part of such a, a great vehicle to share what we love about education. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for, for that. And, and obviously you were recommended by a couple of individuals uh, before we, you come onto the podcast. So really excited to have you on. Uh, and thanks again for being willing to share some of your time today. First of all, uh, like we do with all of our guests, we'll start with our quick fire questions just to get to know you a little bit, Rachel. So first of all, uh, what is your Twitter handle? Or should I say your X handle? I need to really find that out what they call that these days. What is your Twitter handle? You know, I was really, really pleased when I first joined Twitter which it was Twitter way back then. And I just used my name at Rachel Orr and I have still pretty much got the same profile. I started off with a pair of pink shoes, which were the first ever pair of shoes that really got me hooked on being into shoes. And now my Twitter handle still is at Rachel Orr, but I have my David Bowie bespoke shoes there. Fantastic. Love that. And nice and simple. Nice and way, easy way to find you. That's great. Um, how many years have you been working in primary education, Rachel? Oh, gosh, 33 years, I would say. But if, if you go back to when I started training, we're probably looking at 36, 37 years from when I actually began my, my teaching degree because I did a, a B.Ed. honours degree way back in the 1980s. Lovely. Fantastic. People wouldn't have been born then. <laughs> and uh, along that way, Rachel, what's been your primary journey? What roles and responsibilities have you had during that time? 
Oh, well, when, when I first, when I applied for my first ever teaching post back in, back in the 1980s, 90s, they had what was called a pool of teachers. So I applied to two local authorities. And one of them, if you were accepted into the pool, they guaranteed you a job. You just didn't have a say in where the school was. And the other put you into a, a filing cabinet where head teachers could go and pull your name out and read your resume, etc., and your interview spiel that you'd been involved with. And I was fortunate that I got accepted by both. And I chose to go with the one that didn't offer me a job straight away because I really did want to have a say in where I was going. And I was interviewed by a school who wanted somebody with a music background. And my, my, my musicianship is from the singing side. I'm, you know, I, I tinkle on the piano, but I'm, I wouldn't profess to be a pianist. But the school I ended up at was um, being the music coordinator. And from there, I moved on to be um, assessment coordinator and different things until I started to move through, I suppose, the leadership ranks as they were then. Because I started off, I was a probationer teacher. The NQT didn't exist when I qualified. And you didn't have um, sort of TLRs and things like that. We had particular allowances. So you had an A allowance or a B allowance when you applied for a promotion within school. So I, I moved through those ranks within my first eight years within the first school that I actually started. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Fantastic. Um, along um, with that, I would like to ask you, what is your favourite subject and why? Oh, it's got to be it's got to be English. It's got to be the English side because it just underpins absolutely everything else. It's it's the tool for communication, isn't it? And uh, my mum was an English teacher. My father was a head teacher and I'm I'm one of 14 head teachers, not 14 head teachers, but 14 teachers in my family past and present. And I'm the, the fourth generation head teacher and everybody's had a bit of a. I suppose they've dipped their toes into language all the time, whether it be primary or secondary. My parents were secondary and I'm very much primary, mm. but we've all got that underpinning of what it means to have language behind us, whether it's the books, whether it's the writing, the decent conversations, all of those different things have been very much instrumental in our family life. Gosh, well, I'm, well, we'll probably dive into that in a little bit, actually, uh, and explore that little bit of background. That's fascinating. Uh, in your own education as you were growing up, Rachel, did you have a favourite teacher and why were they your favourite teacher? Oh, gosh, you know, I, I moved a few, well, 11 years ago to um, live underneath my parents at the time. Only my mum my is with me now. And I moved to a place which is actually next to the two schools that I went to my primary school and my secondary school. And as, as I go through things, I just, I think of Mrs. Thurlaway. She must be well into her nineties now. I haven't heard that she's no longer with us. And she was probably what you would equate to, I suppose it would be part of the infant years because my, my primary school education, it was an infant and junior mixed school. And I just remember her so much with all of the different things that we did, her creativity, her passion for the stories that we read and she shared with us where she had that real knack and that real gift of finishing at the end of the day, that part of a book where we just went home and thought, oh my goodness, I can't wait to get back to school tomorrow because I want to hear the next part of that story. And that was very much from an early age, probably you know from six, seven years old, and that, that doesn't leave you when you when you get that experience and you think, I really want I want that. And I also remember Mrs. Williams in what would have been classed as fourth year juniors. And I recently bought a copy of Wind on the Moon, which is Eric Linklater. And I remember her reading that to us when we were in fourth year juniors, the equivalent of year six now. And I just had to dip into it yet again. Mm love that and obviously those memories come straight to the surface when you think of that when you think of those favorite teachers which is wonderful and the last one uh, just in the quick fire questions if you had to or if you already do what after school club would you run oh it has to be a music one mm. i i started this when i in my first ever teaching job and I, i'm going i'm going to really seriously name drop here um bridget phillipson the shadow education secretary ah. <laughs> 
she was she she was in my very first ever class right and she was in year three and she was sitting in front of me and we still keep in touch which is incredible and when she first um became an mp many many years ago it was that moment where because obviously i'm from the northeast you'll, you'll be able to tell that from my my northern accent i'm not a geordie but i do have a northeastern accent and Sunderland always prided themselves with the elections on getting the, the vote in first. And she was the first vote on the very first occasion she became an MP. And she, obviously she's um, continued to hold her seat. And I remember we'd, we'd written a musical, one of the teachers and I, loosely based on Greece. And we did it as an after school club and we called it High School Hop. So it had lots of the, the 50s and 60s songs, as well as some of the songs from Greece. And Bridget Phillipson was one of the leading characters in that. And that would be my, that, that was what I, I loved doing. I loved all of that time with the children after school. And I look at teachers now when they, they talk about you know the ability to, to do clubs and the workload they had. And I think... I would do three nights a week as we got closer to the productions. And I do wonder how how I would sustain that now, mm. looking at what I did way back in the, the 90s. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, uh, and, I, and like you say, to be able to give children those opportunities in various ways and diverse ways to develop and grow, such an important thing, how we can try and do that today with the workload issues and the challenges we have is such an important discussion. Well, thank you Absolutely. so much. It's uh, it's great to get to know you a little bit better there and to get to know uh, a bit more about Rachel Law. Let's dive in now uh, to the questions that you're a bit more prepared for, Rachel. So first of all, what inspired you to get involved in primary education? Oh, well, as I've already said, you know, I come from a family of teachers. Um, and at the moment, this, I suppose this my, my, my brother is actively working in further education and he's a musician. He's the the musician in our family and his wife is a teacher and I have a sister and a brother who are retired teachers and my father he was actually um he was 58 when he took early retirement and I was only 16 at the time and my mum was a teacher but they never really pushed my brother nor I into the teaching profession mm. and you know when he took early retirement and I was only 16 it was quite an exciting time because now, I don't know about you if you know when when and teachers who have family whether they have the ability to be released during certain times of the year to go and see their children in you know Christmas performances sports days and things I never had that and it it didn't really hit home to me that my parents didn't come and see the nativity and things like that until I really became a teacher and you know when my when my dad retired and I was 16 there was this moment where he really did suddenly become quite a figure in coming to the sporting events I played hockey I played for the county and I did netball and things like that and he suddenly became very very visible because I was part of his second family he was a I'm a widower when he married my mum so he was a lot older having a second family and you know they that became a moment where my dad became very much a central figure in my life. And I think that's part of another reason, I suppose, going into the teaching profession, even though he never said, you know, do you fancy, it was never mentioned, do you fancy being a teacher? It was, it all came from me. And of course, because he was secondary and I went into primary, there was a clear line there where it, it hadn't been focused upon that. Mm. And I suppose as my parents were teachers, Back in the day, you know, you're talking 70s and early 80s, we only ever had a holiday during the summer break. Mm. We didn't go away during half terms and Easter holidays, those times, times of year. And it really never occurred to me that holidays happened at any other time <laughs> other than that summer break. And we would caravan. You know, my, my dad would, I would you know, when I was 16, if you imagine, you know, I, my dad was 42 when I was born. So when I'm 16, he's getting on for nearly you know, 60 years old and he would drive down to southern Spain and we'd take our caravan and spend five or six days from the northeast of England all the way down to Dover, get on the ferry and across and have our home on our backs. And it was a very simple holiday and we'd have four weeks, which actually, when I look back on it, it's it, it wasn't so simple it was very luxurious mm. 
compared to what families have nowadays it wasn't a package holiday and you know I've worked in lots of um, schools in high levels of deprivation so to go away for four weeks for me my mum and dad and my brother really was an incredible luxury mm. but we 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 barbecued we spent our times on the beach we didn't have electricity in the early days in a caravan we put bottles of water behind the caravan to heat up. Mm. And then that was what we used at the end of the day to wash the sand and the sun cream off. But it was quality family time together. And those are the, the memories I have of holidays as a young child, right up until I was 17, which was the, the last time we went away as an entire family. But when my dad was 85 and had his 86th birthday, I took my mum and dad to Italy. And that was that was quite a a different memory to have yeah. where I was very much taking them on holiday and looking after them compared to being the child and my parents looking after me and giving me that experience. Absolutely. No, that's fantastic. And like you say, when you were actually talking earlier about um, your your favourite subject and then, and then you mentioned, obviously, your the, the number of people in your family who have been teachers it's quite clear there's a lot of inspiration there but it's obvious obvious though that they didn't kind of direct you towards that it just seems to be something that is innate something that you you always wanted to do and that obviously them doing it has helped to give you an inspiration to to kind of look and see well that's what i want to do and go into that which is wonderful and obviously uh, in primary education we have moments and experiences which we always remember will always stay with us uh, with the children with the people that we work with i wonder if you could, could you share with us a funny story from your time in being in primary education oh gosh where do i begin i think there are lots of little tiny snippets and i've already alluded to the fact that um i taught the education the shadow education secretary bridget phillipson and um she was, I was a probationary teacher and it was my, my first year and it was, I, it was a simple pass or fail. And I, I remember she suddenly sidled up to me and um, said to me, I'd come back from the, the toilet. It was in the days where the, the, the toilet was next to my classroom. You could nip out of your classroom and nobody would have questioned that you'd gone for, you know, 90 seconds to um, relieve yourself. And she came and she caught me and she said, you do know your skirt's caught up in your knickers, don't you? She was seven. <laughs> and I'm sure she will still remember that to this day. And I stayed at that school for eight years. And as I've said already, I was the music and assessment coordinator. But I do remember an, an, another, like little sort of nuggets of, of things where it was a Christmas production and it was my, my first year as the music coordinator. And we were in church and I was conducting the choir for the music for the Christmas play. And we had um, Mary and Joseph, which were typically reception children, even though the choir were the older kids. And Mary, she had quite a strong personality and Joseph had suddenly sort of started crying, shouting, I want a wee. And Mary had shot him this glance and equally as loud it told him, shut up, sit down. And that he should have gone when everyone else did. And I thought she's going to be a teacher in the future, just saying saying how, how it is. And then, of course, in my, my deputy headship years, I changed school by then. I had two deputy headships, which were both in areas of um, deprivation. But the one I remember the most, and it, it is the one that my mum always says to me, you talk about this school over every other school in which you, you have worked. And I was there for 11 years as a deputy head and then subsequently as a, a head teacher. And I had a year four class at the time. And I, it's quite I don't know whether anybody else would have this. I had four sets of twins in this class. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, one set of, um, most of them were were um, either two girls or two boys, but I had a set of twins that were boy and girl. And I have, there are twins in my family and um, in my, my father's um, first family, he has a boy and a girl and I share the same birthday with them. But um, I'm going to call um, the... Um, the particular twin I'm going to, to talk about, I'm going to call her Rachel because I've never come across a Rachel that I've taught yet. And I'll just protect her name. But with this particular twin, she was um, she was always battling with head lice. And in this particular school, it was always rife. And it was a challenge to get on top of. And you know, if you sent out the text messages or the letters to say there's a case of head lice, blah, blah, blah. You you knew you were you were wasting trees. You were printing or sending things. 
But this particular end date was so hot and the kids had come in from being, we had wonderful grounds, fabulous grounds, because it was, it was an old mining village and they still have these wonderful grounds, which I hope they retain because it's fabulous for the kids to spend so much time outside. So Rachel appeared and she was running her fingers through her hair and she really did have a problem with head lice. And she said, oh, I'm so hot and dripping, my nits have drowned. <laughs> Which really, really, it, it, these are things, you know, and you're going back 20 odd years, but they do, they do stick with you. Yeah. And then I suppose my, my final one, I have, um, it's, it's a little bit of a, it's a strange one because it's, it's funny and it's not funny, but it was, it started off with a Christmas party day. And besides having sent two of the um, year six lads home, having walked down the school drive with two cans of diamond white cider that their father had given them. I said, you take those home and rang the parents. I had two other lads who came in saying that had a magic meal the night before, oh. which you can imagine where that, that's going to go. And yeah. I, I know sort of magic mushrooms aren't a funny situation. But the bit that did make me smile after we did all of the, the necessary things was one of them said, I've forgotten what we had. And then the other little lad said, but it was spaghetti bolognese because he couldn't remember the word spaghetti. <laughs> and, and I and the the lady who was the head teacher that I took over and I was her deputy, we still talk about these little moments and these little nuggets in our time working in a real partnership together mm. that that make me smile incredibly. And I have really fond memories. And you know, it's it's only recently um I had to have British Heart Foundation out to do to collect some items to take and this particular lad who came we just got talking and I said where I had had worked and where I'd been a head teacher and he said oh my goodness I think you taught my brother mm. and he texted his brother and his brother had said oh I wish I was there I'd love to have a bit crack with her <laughs> and I'm thinking we're going back you know back to the 1990s early 20s early 2000s and for for this in a challenging area for them to remember who you are and say, I'd love to have a bit crack with her. I thought, I, I'd like to think I did a good job. Absolutely. Now, those are some fantastic little stories there. And like you say, it's, it, I think it summarizes so well what happens because it often isn't one big thing that happens, but so many little things that happen through throughout the years that you teach and you're around the children and you're working with the, the other teachers that you work with. You know, you just have those memories always. So th thank you so much for sharing those, Rachel. We're going to go on to your primary three now, which is kind of the main part of the podcast. And as um, and just any new listeners that are listening, the primary three are three things about primary education that the guest is really passionate about. It could be top tips, resources, philosophies, absolutely anything that they are really passionate about. So thank me for thank you sending me yours ahead of time Rachel we're going to start uh, with your first one which is all about language and, and communication so why is this for you one of the very first things about primary education that's so important to you I think having worked in several schools where children arrive with very poorly developed communication skills it really is a huge priority for me and I recall speaking with a speech and language therapist who gave a child's parents a target. And it wasn't for the child, but they said to the parent, you know, something that you need to do is to look at your child when they are talking mm. to you and not look away from them. And certainly, I suppose nowadays, not look at your phone. Mm. And that really hit home to me that you've got these children who are trying to talk with their parents, but the parents aren't even giving them the attention or the, the, that obvious interaction and the fact that they are listening with intent. And you know, I, I do live next door to, to two schools. The, it's mainly the primary school, but you see children coming out and they can wander behind their parents or run ahead of their parents. And it's, it scares the wits out of me because it's, it's a busy road when cars are going up and down a school. And I always think, you know, I, I, sh I, can, I find myself saying to out loud please hold that little one's hand mm. even just to know that they're safe and the fact that the child is coming out and they're not being asked at that moment maybe they are asked later you know what did you do what happened what, what have you had for lunch even though the child might say I can't remember don't know mm -hmm. and things which is typically common but seeing Seeing parents really interact with their children is something that's paramount. And having had that comment from a from a, a, a speech and language therapist, it really hit home to me that 
good quality conversation is is really there at the fore. And I know schools nowadays, there's, there's lots, we, we, we use the term, you know, have you talk partner? And I know that it, that originally um, came from um, a particular programme. It was a course that people could attend for talking partners and different things. I mean, it's, it's something that people just use now, but I do wonder how well it is used so that language, listening and talking are developed. And it's not just teachers saying, turn to your talk partner and have a chat. I think sometimes, like you say, when we are using that strategy, sometimes it can become a, a substitute for the thinking time for the child, rather than perhaps the focus on developing the language of vocabulary between the children. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, like you say, language and communication is so important, as you say, in a, in a world where we have so many more distractions and, and it's kind of a, a common thing we use and say, but it is so true. I mean, having, having, having two kids myself, you know, they are growing up in a completely different environment to where I grew up. Uh, and so trying to inter integrate and interact uh, the, with with those um, moments, we can build that, that language, I think is so important. So obviously you mentioned talk partners. Uh, in terms of your experience in working in primary education then, in terms of language and communication, what would you say schools can do to help provide more opportunities or, or strategies to help build in more, more chances for, for talk, language and communication? I think what really hit home to me in looking at this further was one particular year. It's quite a while back now because we don't have a SAT for writing anymore. It's all teacher assessment. And But I do remember this one particular writing task and it was about writing a speech. And I was the head teacher at the time and we grouped our children in two classrooms and then we had a nurture group where these children really just couldn't manage in a, a confined space. We needed to have something a little bit more gentle. And I read out verbatim all the instructions. And then every single hand went up and said, what's a speech? Because that was the task, write a speech. And my heart broke for them all. And I'm sure I wasn't the only teacher on that day who, who experienced that at all. And it was something I thought about. We, we really need to look at vocabulary and this is we're going back you know to the early 2000s and when you look at different things now um there are so many things out there we've got literacy shared we've got vocabulary ninja and they're all based and developed on the back of we need really to improve children's language but for me the big turning point was pie corbett in I'm in the northeast and I was part of County Durham local authority and the local authority had the privilege of Pi Corbett coming into, into the area and I found myself in a position of attending one of his talk for writing days and being prolific on Twitter or X as it's now called I, I tweeted all sorts of things and we struck up a rapport and I, I found myself in the position where Pi Corbett said he would come to my school and, you know, I think, goodness, how does that happen? Well, it happens with money, obviously, because he has to earn a living. And there's a huge distance between us. He's, you know, down in Surrey and I'm in the northeast of England. And I remember picking him up at Durham Station and taking him to his hotel, having a bite to eat, and then picking him up the next day to go to school. But I had planned this so far in advance as an inset day and to talk to the staff a lot of whom had several of his books. So the, the conversation had already started with staff about this is the need in our school. We have children who don't have the language. I had one particular year group who they'd been talking about um, wool. And it was this is it's it's a long time ago, I know, but it's still it's still very relevant, relevant um to what's happening. And, but it was one of those awful QCA units of work where they were looking at materials and their properties but they were looking at wool and the children didn't realize that wool came from a sheep but then the question happened what's a sheep because in this old mining village it really wasn't prevalent with sheep a few cows maybe but not sheep so it it was a question of going to a farm to give them the experience of where they were sheep. And they also actually looked at and um, read Dick King Smith's book, Babe, the Sheep Pig. So this was where really we suddenly started, this is massive, where children just don't have the language to give them those 
the, the richness of their vocabulary, but the language isn't there because they haven't got the experiences. And the experience had to come from the practical and the physical opportunity of experiencing these things, but also then looking at having those high quality texts. And I was really lucky. Pi came to my school three times and I, because I planned it in order to fund it, I contacted our cluster of schools and there were 26 in this particular education action zone at the time, which was something very, very prevalent in the northeast of England. And I had entire schools because it was you know, the first Monday after Easter or the first Monday after a particular holiday where most schools would plan for an inset day. They planned for their whole staff to come. And I, re I remember when I went on the, the course myself thinking, how do I come back and infuse all of the staff myself with how fired I am up about it? And that's really hard because you, you send staff on a course and they come back and they say, oh, there's this and there's this and I want to do this and this is going to be brilliant. But it's hard really to get that across to the rest of the staff when you're not the person who delivered the original. Mm. And to have Pi Corbett come in and, and to have so many schools have their entire staff come to a day, the impact really was incredible. It was empowering it was enabling and it made an incredible difference. And when Pi came back um, for the second and third time, you know, he talked to the staff in our school and looked at um, children's work, etc. And he, he said, you know, thinking about an area in a really high level of deprivation and to see the impact of it all. But it comes down to what really is simply common sense. It's not a formula. It's just grounded on good quality talk, books and staff who believe in it and love it all. Love that. And obviously, you know, a wide range of people listen to this podcast, be it teachers or newly qualified or recently qualified teachers or um, people who lead schools as well. And being able to identify that this language and communication side of things is such a bedrock, which sometimes we just get gets lost in everything. We have focus on the reading, the writing, the maths, we have the wider curriculum, we have, you know, all these other things that are going on. But actually that basis of that language and communication can have such an impact. Um, and as, as you say, the work of Pi Corbett is, is a great way of, of being able to address that. Um, so thank you very much for sharing that, Rachel. Okay, we'll go on to the second of your primary three now uh, to discuss, which you've shared, which is about self-esteem and confidence. So why is that one of the three primary things for you in primary education? Oh, I, th I think this comes from having worked in schools where there has been a high level of deprivation. And I think sometimes when we think of confidence, it can be overshadowed by cockiness and domineering. And that's not what I mean when I look at developing self-esteem and confidence in the children with whom we work and young people in general. You know, I, I come back to times myself. I remember being spoken to by so-called friends at school saying, you know, what are you wearing? And the fact that I wore glasses and I was short, you know, I was, I was in the equivalent of year seven and I still look like somebody in year three. And I, I don't think I've grown much more that way since but it sticks with you and you never forget those comments as they are they're ingrained in your memories and I, I equally remember sadly a secondary school PE teacher when I first went to the comprehensive school and I played for the netball team in my primary school and when you got to the secondary school suddenly you had all of the different feeder primaries and everybody on each of those netball teams vying for a place on the one secondary school team and this secondary school teacher said to me, she wondered why I was bothering because I was so much shorter than the others. Yeah. But determination and belief in myself, because my dad said, he quoted Eleanor Roosevelt and said, nobody can make you feel inferior without your consent. I got a place on the team because I was agile. Yes, I was shorter by a foot compared to most people, but I could nip around and I could jump. And my dad always said to me, because he, he was only five foot seven. He said, be yourself. And he was proud no matter what, a generous and gracious man and somebody who just said, I delight in you and what you do. And I think some of the confidence that I've experienced with the children I've worked with in an area of deprivation 
initially has been founded on their need to survive, their need to, I suppose, mark their territory. And sadly, for some of them, it's a need to seek revenge, mm. which comes down to, to bullying and keeping ahead of others and often impressing others for the wrong reasons. And I often pin that type of confidence down to people who and children where they have low, low self-esteem and that desire to prove themselves by having power over others. I had that as a head teacher where, you know, I experienced it with the parents who would lash out verbally at me or at staff on our team if they didn't like what was said, what was done, any comments that were made. And sometimes I do wonder whether it, it actually ends up being a generational matter. I don't know whether you um, remember when the DFE brought out SEAL, mm. which stood for Social and Emotional Aspects of Learning. And at that time, I was a deputy. And in our school, we had a parent support advisor. And I was incredibly privileged to have a counsellor from the place to be working in our school. Only two and a half days. But what a time to be alive in education. And we're going back you know, to 2000 and early 2000s and you think I'm, I'm probably talking 20 years ago but that was happening then and it was incredible to have all of that opportunity and to use it with our with our children and yes the resources now may be out of date and there are one size fits all and I'm very much not a one size fits all person but we began to make the, the SEAL resource at the time, the bedrock of our curriculum. And it was founded on that social and emotional awareness. And we built upon that with the, the bricks of the other curriculum subjects at that time and as the curriculum was then. And I still don't think that would be any different to today in the actual sort of philosophy and what underpins it, the content will be different and more up to date. But the actual awareness of how we create a curriculum, and I know lots of schools start to, they look at, you know, what is our intent? How are we going to implement it? What is the impact? If you haven't got the intent right, you may as well forget the other two. Why are we doing it? We've got to come back to the why. And our place to be colleague worked with staff and children to unlock the barriers for the children in our school at the time, because they really struggled to express their feelings. Oh, they showed their feelings. They showed them very much on the playground, in the classroom, in front of their parents, in front of their teachers. You could see what their feelings were, but they weren't actually expressing what those feelings meant to them. They were very much um, anger and aggression which came down to why there were so many children whose self-esteem was low. So we started to look at what, what, what it means to be confident mm -hmm. and to have confidence. And for me, that really was founded in trust and honesty. And working in an ex-mining village, a lot of children really didn't trust anybody. The parents didn't trust you. You really, as, as a, a staff team, and I mean that right across the board, not just the teachers, it was down to everybody, the premises staff, the admin staff, and often the admin staff were the people who bore the brunt of it because they were the people who answered the phone or opened the door to the parents coming in and got it full on and really weren't prepared for that and weren't trained in that. How, how many of us actually are trained in dealing with that level of confrontation and somebody coming you coming at you full on because they don't like what they've heard or they don't feel they can trust you? And that really had to be the, the foundations of where we started looking at how do, what is trust? What is honesty? And what, what, what is real? What, what are our truths? And I, I really felt a key aspect of exploring the values and beliefs um, it really needed to centre on the children owning these and not simply saying what their parents and their family members believed in. Mm. They needed to understand you have a voice. You can express yourself based on what you feel and believe in. And that was a tough nut to crack. It wasn't easy. Mm. The children that I, I worked with were extremely guarded and protective 
And it was seen as a weakness if they were to share their vulnerable side. And there was a need to get them involved in real practical experiences and talk through what it meant, I suppose, to be the person they really want to be. And I can't deny there weren't lots of tears and that wasn't just from the children. It was a really challenging time and it, it took time because things don't happen that quickly. You can't flick a switch and say, we're going to do well-being, we're going to do self-esteem, we're going to do this. Let's just bring in a ready-made program. You've got to work with what you have and unpick it. And often I like to, I mean, you've seen the analogy of you know, when you have the iceberg and it shows all of these things above and then the bottom of the iceberg just goes deeper and deeper. I often like to um, explore it as an onion. And I cook with onions a lot, so I've peeled an awful lot of onions. And when you, you take the layer back and the layer back and the layer back to get to where you want, it's that little seed in the middle that you start with. And when you peel back the layers of the onion, you get down to what makes you, the child, the other person tick and what it is that is their essence and their being. But equally, the, the converse of that can be as that seed grows, as each layer is wrapped around the seed, layer upon layer upon layer, that becomes a child's armor. It becomes our armor. And we hide behind it. We shield ourselves behind it. And that's where the, the nurturing and the fostering has to happen in order to support and work with children to build their self-esteem, their self-belief, their confidence for the right reasons but we've got to do it ourselves first before we can do that with others, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, I was going to kind of make that point that it's so interesting about how, um, like you say, with the children you're working and you've seen this in your own experience, particularly with the kind of dynamics and the, the settings and context that you've worked in. It seems that this is clearly a major problem, major challenge. But I think, like you say, with any setting, you know, there are so many children who have these challenges with self-esteem and confidence. And interestingly, I, I wonder if the two, the, the first, the primary three, the language of the communication is actually linked to this. You know, we're struggling so much with language and communication issues with with children who are growing up in the world that we have now. And if those self-esteem and confidence issues are happening obviously with many factors and causes and it's a, it's a very complex issue but language and communication can really have an impact on that as well can't it yeah i i think when I mean, we'll, we'll come shortly on to, to my third primary but i think when i looked at these i couldn't separate them because they are intertwined mm -hmm. and you can't have one without the other mm -hmm. and i'm sure other people who have had the privilege of sharing their primary three they are the root of what they truly believe in and the fundamentals that underpin what they believe in in order to work with our children and young people to give them the best opportunity so that it's not just in the time that we have them, but we give we equip them and give them the skills to continue those things themselves without having to be prompted by another person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, let's start to move our way on to the third of your primary three. Uh, and you're right, uh, with these, uh, often they do very much link in either subtle ways or very obvious ways. There always seems to be a link that comes through, which is what I love to see. And it's often very subconsciously that that happens uh, with people as well. So let's talk about your third of the primary three. And that is all about uh, a zest to stay curious and eager for more. So first of all, do you want to talk about um, what uh, you mean by this uh, and how it, why it's something that's so important to you with your primary three? That comes down to my mum. Um, I mean, as, as a family and my mum and myself in particular, we are um, practicing Christians and my mum did a, for all she was a teacher in her forties, she decided to go back and do another degree in theology, not to become a lay reader, but because she had that eagerness for more and wanted it to be through a theological vehicle and she said to me it's important to stay curious and be eager for more and she shared with me a wonderful quote from Hebrews which was share what you have for such is pleasing to God and to stay curious to me is you know yes we're teachers and we teach things but 
you know, we're not spoon feeders, are we? You know, teaching, there's, I, I, I do apologize. I do know that there is somebody who said this particular um, quote, that teaching takes place in time, but learning takes place over time. And I can't recall their name. It was Dylan William, Dylan William, um, who said it in one of his training courses, but it, he's not the actual author of it. And I thought this, this is just so powerful. We teach in the moment but the learning takes place over time because it's not being spoon fed. That learning changes because hopefully as teachers and educators, we drop things in that spark off something in a child where it's, they want to remain and stay curious. And they think, I want to know more about that. So they go off on their own journey. And some of those things might happen in a very incidental fashion and others might happen in a very deliberate fashion because we plan for it and we say, okay, it's over to you. Here's, here's the question. Here's the, the food for thought. Here's something to, to stimulate you. But we have to allow children to fly and to flourish and give them those opportunities where we're not just sitting them down and giving them fact after fact after fact. It's not, it's not just knowledge, it's not just skills. It's, and it's not just thinking, but it's getting children to come to the realization themselves, I suppose, and young people. I am me, I am who I am and I can be what I want to be. And whatever I want to be, I'm in control of that and I have the power to do those things. And there are people who are going to nudge me and give me that little push just to keep on going. But I ultimately hold that power to move myself and get myself into those positions. And I do want children to stay curious. We're all learning. You know, I've taken early retirement as a head teacher. I'm 55, 56 next month. Why do we always say that? Why do we say what our next birthday is? I don't know. But um but I haven't stopped learning. I'm working with teachers on their national professional qualifications, the NPQs. And I learn from them every day, even though the role I'm working with them is in a teaching role, but they teach me as much as I impart to them. It's it's reciprocal. And that's what I what I want for the for the children. And I had a, a wonderful moment, not just the Bridget Phillipson moment as somebody who's now become the shadow education secretary. I had um, a moment where I was working in initial teacher training and we had a trainee teacher and I taught her in year two and in year four. And she'd been told that there was somebody facilitating part of her course that she might remember. And I was quite overwhelmed for the person who rang me to say, she said, it was you out of all of the teachers she could have named. And she's a linguist and, and, you know, language, English, modern foreign languages. And I just think she continued to stay curious and have that zest for more and that eagerness to keep on wanting more. And when we truly lose ourselves in learning, we can't stop. Can we, mm. your brain doesn't stop. You want to keep, you want to keep on going and whether it's, you know, reading and all sorts. And the interesting thing was when, when I'd, um, I, I messaged Pi Corbett and said, I'm taking early retirement at Christmas. And one of the things he said, you can start reading adult books now and not just children's books all the time. And he recommended a few books. And I suddenly, I just went out and I, I, I bought them because you do get absorbed in what you're doing in the moment because you think, well, I have to keep doing that and there's no other space, but it's making space for what really matters to you, for you to stay curious and that eagerness for more. And when he said that, I thought, you're right. You know, it's, it is a time for me to lose myself in my learning and not just in the learning of the people with whom I'm working. Mm, absolutely. And I've just, as listeners may not know, because obviously we, all, we only send out the audio version, but uh, I'm making loads of notes as we go through, because obviously as listeners know, we, we I have the summary at the end. And I've just written down that sentence you just said, make space for what really matters to you. And I think that's really, really powerful uh, because ultimately, you know, this idea of keeping this zest for learning, this eagerness, this curiosity, it's only going to happen if we 
find space for the things that matters that matter to us and i think that's such an important thing of course the challenge is um finding that space in in the profession that we have and i think also for the children uh, you mentioned obviously the, the importance of keeping that zest and eagerness innate uh, as much as we can with the children obviously i know it's probably a a huge challenge when and it's hard to answer it in a short in, in a short kind of few minute answer but for you, what are some ways that teachers in the classroom listening to this can try and encourage or give or kind of disseminate some of this eagerness and zest for the children in their classroom, do you think? I think teachers need to share of themselves hmm. and let themselves, let the children, I suppose, look through the lens of the teacher into the teacher. So the teacher is sharing this is what I've continued to do mm. to know that just because, you know, you get to year six and you do your SATs, then you go to secondary school and you do GCSEs, then you do, if you want to, A-levels, not to show that type of trajectory of learning, but to say, you know, this is, this is what I do all the time. And to see that learning is not just about being in school. Yeah. And education isn't just about being in school and, share that vehicle and it has to come through and be yourself as a teacher and just just share it with them and let it all out mm, that's really powerful i like that because again and it comes back so many times when whatever, whatever it is we're talking about whether it's language and communication self-esteem and confidence or whether it's zest and staying curious and eager for more the best way i mean we can put strategies programs and all these things in place and they help they really do but the teacher in front of the children is the ultimate model for that, for all of those three things. Because if we're not showing, um, you know, correct language and communication and showing how we communicate with an individual, if we're not showing that we have self-esteem about ourselves, because, you know, that's an important thing to have. Or if we are not showing that zest and that eagerness and that curiosity, then that will that won't convey or go across to the children, will it, as, uh, as powerfully? And when you think primary school children, you really do have them as little sponges who soak up every word. And for all parents might find it quite cringy. It really is a privilege when the parents say your name is spoken about in the home. Miss said this, sir said this, and it's all this. And that says you've had an impact yeah. and the child is really listening That's and cool. wants to do more. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you so much for sharing all those primary three, uh, Rachel. It's just some really powerful messages, which all link together so well, but ultimately come around to the fact that the teacher is the one that leads these from the front as well. I love that. Let's finish off with the last couple of uh, things before we round this episode off. First of all, who would you recommend for a future interview on this podcast? Oh, I thought long and hard about this, but um, having listened to various podcasts and know who's already been recommended, I started to think, who else mm -hmm. in... Um, who else has had an impact on me in my thinking? And I have two people spring to mind. Um, one of them is Martin Waller, and he's very much into digital literacies, but also is um, delivering um, RE and philosophy across the school. And then there's Mrs. Creativity, Maria, who does a lot of reflective work with children, a lot of photography, reflective work with um, photography and looking at how we can reflect on spiritual ways and other reflective ways with young children. They're both primary based, which is, I suppose, my, my background. So that's why I'd like to recommend them. Perfect. And that's what we want to hear on the primary education voices as well. So that's uh, fantastic. Love the, the diversity of those uh, two individuals there. Uh, and we'll look forward to hopefully getting that on a future episode in the near future. And finally, to finish off your episode, Rachel, what is the best thing for you about being in primary education? I'm going to come back to my mum again with this, uh, my mum and dad, but my mum in particular. Um, my mum gave me two words which I have repeatedly used in interviews, and they're, they're going to potentially sound a little bit um, off the wall. One is educare and one is educare, and it's all about the need for balance. So educare is about the teaching, the bringing up of the children with new skills and knowledge, and educare... So one is educare, A-R-E, and educare is E-R-E. You can tell they come from the, 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 the root word of education. And the educare is all about drawing out and leading on. 
And I think we, we need a balance of the two where we as teachers have the privilege and the great pleasure of engaging and interacting with children from the earliest of ages. Parents and carers charge us with their most precious thing and entrust us to give them the best of everything. And we get to impart and share the skills and knowledge, you know, through those meaningful experiences and application to everyday living. And not to um, name the cliche, but we're not filling empty vessels because children come to us with a wealth of different skills, experience and what they would call stuff. And I think, um, you know, I'd like to think that we invite them, we include them, we involve them because we want to inspire them. And in turn, that leads on to exciting them, enthusing them, enabling them in order to empower them. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rachel. I love that end to this podcast. Uh, thank you for sharing your time and, and coming on to Primary Education Voices. Absolute pleasure. And thank you for inviting me and for those who offered that recommendation. It's a real privilege and a pleasure. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, wasn't that fantastic? It was a great opportunity to be able to sit with Rachel on a day where she just had a, a bathroom delivered, but she still found some time to sit down with me uh, and to record this episode. And what an episode it was once again, um, as all of our episodes are fantastic with our inspirational guests. Uh, Rachel uh, was wonderful with her primary three that she shared with us. First of all, all around um, building language and communication. Uh, and she mentioned, of course, the, the context with which she had taught with many of the, the children that she had taught before uh, and how language and communication was always an area of need for these children. And it had such an impact on all the areas of the curriculum. Uh, language and communication is often overlooked uh, when we think about uh, our curriculums and we think about what we're teaching for the children, the knowledge that they need. Those skills within language and communication can often be lost uh, and they play such a vital role uh, in a child's ability to learn. Uh, she specifically mentioned, obviously, Pike Corbett, but made reference to the great work on Literacy Shed, Vocabulary Ninja, uh, and all, and just on how the importance and how we can build vocabulary uh, within the children in our classes and our schools. Uh, and so I think that this is a really wonderful uh, place to start. She then moved on, of course, for the second of her primary three to talk about self-esteem and confidence. Um, this is really powerful stuff. Thinking about how the self-esteem and confidence that children have can be masked by perhaps cockiness and, and the way in which children come across that bravado we sometimes see. But actually, whilst that may seem like self-esteem, it could be hiding some really um, some real deficits uh, in self-esteem. And that, again, has an impact on the learning that the children are able to engage with, linking so well with the things we've learned so far on this podcast about behavior as a communication as well. And there's a great section in there. Uh, a section in the book uh, all about behaviourist communication as well. So uh, I'd urge you to um, to get the book and to to read more about that in particular. But Rachel's discussion about uh, SEAL um, and how she used that as a foundation of their curriculum uh, and that helped to build their intent of what their curriculum was and what it was going to do for their children, I thought was really powerful. Um, and helping children to see that it's not a weakness that they share their vulnerable side, but exploring it and delving into it and helping them to understand what makes them tick and to build that understanding of themselves, I think was powerful. And then, of course, we go to uh, her third of the primary three, which is about zest to stay curious and eager for, to learn more. Uh, we are not spoon feeders in primary education. We have knowledge, which we want the children to learn. But learning takes place, the teaching it takes place in time, but learning takes place over time, which was the great quote that she shared uh, in her discussion. Uh, I just thought it was powerful uh, words and how we as teachers need to share more of ourselves and make space for what really matters to us if we're really going to ignite the, the enthusiasm and the passion for learning. Um, Rachel mentioned, of course, that we as educators in primary education have a great uh, opportunity and are lucky in some ways that the children that we teach are really like sponges. Like they've got, a, in many cases, particularly in early years and the younger years, are almost clean slates, ready to have that influence of excitement of learning um, built into them, um, which, of course, we as, as, as early uh, practitioners uh, need to make sure we make the most of and that we support them with and through to help them to gain that zest and the eagerness to learn. 
So I think that's just a really excellent uh, point made there by Rachel. And overall, a great episode. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining us on the podcast. All that's left for me to say, if there's a primary colleague that you'd love to hear more from, contact me on X, either through uh, at Prime Edgy Voices or at mroberts90matt, and let me know what inspiring primary teacher, TA, support staff, leader, whoever it is uh, that you'd love to hear from on a future episode. Thank you so much for joining us to, hear, to join us for another Primary Education Voice. I'll see you again next time when we'll meet another inspirational educator.